This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Missing More Amari podcast. I'm Tim here with Lance tonight. Lance, we got a doozy. Oh man, we have a good one. We have one that people have been asking about since we released episode 19. Yeah, yeah. We we get emails every week about where is episode 18? Um, where it's not on my iTunes feed? Is it? Is it a mistake? Is it just with iTunes? Where is episode 18? Why wouldn't you have renumbered? if you decided to take this down <laughs> and and that's a fair question too um but i don't even know if i have an answer for that one but this is the famed episode 18 that we removed several months ago it's with a blogger who is anonymous and we'll find out why i feel like at this point it's almost ironic because i feel like at this point we are doing what the blogger had described to us when by 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 crossing over certain thresholds with the experience of this case as you listen to the clips you'll realize that he's really putting a lot of fancy words and metaphors on literal experiences by saying you've come to a crossroads so this is this and let's compare it to this big chaotic monster and that's great that's really poetic and it's also where we're at now and we've talked about this between the two of us, whether we should re-release it in its entirety or release it as we're releasing it now. In its entirety, it's a little it's a little convoluted. So you'll hear clips, and then you'll hear us comment on it, and then you'll hear us uh, comment on it today. You'll hear us in those clips from that time, and then you'll hear us now. Uh, and it, it it really is important, and it speaks to the entire experience. And the entire journey of looking into this case. He's a character that came along and as unpleasant as it ended, I don't think we would be where we're at now if we didn't have that type of character come along. So he is an important piece in this in order to get where you feel responsible and comfortable looking into the case. And uh, this was episode 18. Our episode 16 was the one where we were in Lincoln, and he references it a little bit. But uh, we were in Lincoln, and we got these threatening emails from someone named Miles Wainwright. 
at first we thought that Miles Wainwright could be this person because we had started getting messages from this person right around that same time. Um, I called him the very next day and asked him directly if he was Miles Wainwright, and he said no. And so we did we did take his word for that. We did believe him. Um, so we did decide to have him on because I think we really weren't sure what to do at that point. And this was a person who had some really original thoughts. And I think in the back of our heads, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we thought that, yes, we did believe him when he said he wasn't Miles Wainwright. But I think we thought maybe there's a chance that this guy could be. And who knows what happens with this audio? Like, you know, like we, we should ask him questions. Maybe he'll say something that proves that he is. Yeah, you, no, you're not wrong. I remember thinking the same thing. I remember having the conversation and and thinking if if he was Miles Wainwright and he was the reason why we did not go on that hike to the coordinates that day, that we should have something recorded, that we should continue a communication with him just to further uh, investigate his, his background and further investigate him as a person. He does seem like, and as you listen to the clips, he does seem like the type that will create some sort of chaos and some sort of danger in order to come back into the situation to save it. Those, the, the people who do that are, you know, the, if there's nothing going on, if there's nothing happening and, and they need to feel some sort of assurance that they're worthy, they'll create some sort of chaos and then come in and fix the chaos. And back then we had no idea. Like I, I, <laughs> I hadn't met John Ronson and read the psychopath test and, uh, so you've been publicly shamed. So I had no idea that these people even existed until until now or until like recently, until a few months ago. So and he does fit those uh, the characteristics of, of that, that very easily could create some sort of drama only to come in to save it. And, and you look at him and say, wow, you're a hero. And uh, and so this episode is sort of a black eye on the run of this podcast, I would say. It's the only episode we ever took down. Um, it's it's probably the only episode we really regret um, posting at this point. So, it, but but it but it's something that we own still. You know, like there is that hole in our catalog. It goes from seventeen to nineteen, so we do acknowledge it. Um, and so, but we wanted to acknowledge it a little bit more directly here with this episode and its audio that we still kind of value. Um, so we wanted to put it out there. We wanted to shed a light on this mystery that was the missing episode 18 and show you that you're not missing anything incredible. You're missing something that we found interesting and still find interesting, but it's not a case changer or anything like that. It's a really fascinating character study. And after at this point in, in our careers in doing this, uh, we really owe it to the friends who listen to this show. And I'm saying friends as a whole, the the thousands of downloads we get, people ask us what's happening with that. What, where's episode 18? Where is it? And we say, oh, you don't need to know about that. At this point, I feel like they're, you know, these are these are people who uh, who listen to us and, and almost on like a, you know, they, they enjoy it. You know, it's, it's there, there's a connection there. So we owe it to them. We owe it to you guys who listen. And again, like you said, it's nothing that it's nothing that's case breaking, but it certainly is really, really fascinating to analyze a character like this and to actually experience it. And we will be back very soon with more and we will have more Mora Murray content, um, more specific 
to the Maura Murray case because this is a little bit more of talking about the lineage of the the podcast. We do get into the Maura Murray case a little bit, but let's just say right here that there's going to be a ton more Maura Murray information, new information, and such coming in the next month or two. So hold on. Uh, stick with us. Check this one out as a character study, but understand that there is a ton of information coming soon. Okay, so Lance, let's start throwing into these clips. The first clip that we have to play is the blogger describing why he's anonymous online, why he does a blog anonymous, and why he posts about this case anonymously. I'm anonymous. There's, I think there's a number of reasons I'm anonymous. Uh, one of the big reasons, or one of the most prominent reasons I'm anonymous is because it allows me to say things that I wouldn't normally say or I would, you know, I wouldn't feel compelled to say if I had to use my real name. I wouldn't want it to come back on me if it was my real name. You know, uh, if somebody does a Google search on you, if you're going you know, to get, uh, you're going for a job interview or something of that nature, and they find something you've written that's controversial or something they don't agree with, uh, that could mean you're not getting the job. So this allow this frees me up to express um, my opinion freely, and that's probably one of the main reasons I'm anonymous. Another reason I'm anonymous, too, is, you know, I do tackle some pretty touchy subjects. Um, if you look at my blog, anybody who looks at my blog can see that, you know, I go after the Russians. I, I go after, you, you name it, I go after them. So I don't, I don't shy away from, uh, very touchy subjects and, and I just go right at the heart of it. And, uh, you know, I've gotten into a little bit of, of trouble doing that as, as a matter of fact. And I'm actually glad that I was anonymous as a result of that, because if I wasn't, um, some of these individuals, I think at least, could could have come after me. So, um, so I need you know I have to think about my wife and children. I have two children and a wife, and I don't want to I don't want any harm to come to them because of something that I freely expressed on the internet. So, yeah, that, that's a really the two main reasons that I'm anonymous. Okay, so Lance, what'd you think of that clip? Well, it always strikes me every time we listen to this, and honestly, I haven't listened to this in in a few months. Longer, probably. Yeah, definitely longer. Um, also, like how much time has actually gone by? It feels like we just did this interview with him last week. When it, when I first when I started hearing it, I remembered it. I remembered the the you know what he looked like on Skype and everything. Um, and what strikes me all the, the right off the bat is just how articulate he was, and and you really fall into the the pattern in which he speaks, the rhythm he speaks in. Do you think when I first hear about the anonymous, I, I write because I write anonymously because I want to fill in the blanks, right? Do you think that's a cop out? Do you think that writing anonymously is a cop out to just write whatever the hell you want to write? I don't know. It seems to give him permission to be antagonistic, I think. It, it makes it easier for him t to be that way, I think. Um, and he kind of says it is in, in the clip. Don't you think that that's just a bit hypocritical though because he it gives him the license and the anonymity to be antagonistic and and 
put forth all of these controversial topics and his opinion on them. But then he says he wants to protect his family. But what about the damage that it does to the people that he's writing about? I mean, it's free. It's fair game on everybody else except for him. And he gets to not put his name out there. Like You should be playing on an even playing field at this point. Right. I see what you're saying. And I think the next clip will help to show the audience uh, what you mean. But uh, before we throw it to that, I did want to mention that he, he said that he really goes at the heart of the issues. And I think he does in a lot of ways. Um, but he definitely misses the heart occasionally. And, and he is in, an incredibly intense guy um, and passionate, which can be really good traits if your if your direction is proper unfortunately we know with this guy that sometimes he misses the mark with his direction you do have to give people credit who have the tenacity to say these things anyway and to say them in a public forum right and his public forum was the internet and blogging uh again i come back to if you have the tenacity and you are trying to strike at the heart of these topics and be controversial and, and shake things up, the anonymous thing really, really confuses me because it, it almost takes away a bit of credibility right off the bat that I see, I see an anonymous name, which is kind of a jokey name. And I, I don't, as, as articulate as you can be and as well-written as you can be, it, it's, it's tough to even take that step to start reading the blog. So when you are writing anonymously, I think that does take a little bit of credibility away from the topics that you're trying to strike the heart of. And here is clip two, where the blogger talks about a response that he got from some of his posts. There were a number of experiences, but this was a big one. Um, it was, you know, I told you I'm interested in politics. And so I visit all different kinds of venues across the internet, and one particular venue I used to visit quite frequently was uh, it was the blog of a former director of human intelligence for the Department of Defense, and the guy had a lot of interesting things to say, and I would occasionally comment at his blog. And these are some this is these are some pretty heavy issues with some serious intellectual individuals. So, um, you know, it was pretty ballsy of me to even comment there, but, you know, I, f I felt confident that I had been, you know, speaking to these issues for so long in my life that, you know, I could hold my own weight. Well, I said something in particular that I guess rubbed him the wrong way. It had something to do with, you know, uh, being in the military or being recruited by the military and being a soldier, something to that effect. And, uh, and one thing led to another, and he ended up threatening me. And the threat was that he would get his special ops, um, what I would call goons, to come after me and do to me what they did to Che Guevara. And he wanted my name and my address so they could do that. And so we took it to email. He subsequently erased it from his blog. He took, we took it to email, and this continued in an email discussion. And I told him, I said, I consider what he said uh, not only a veiled threat like you guys received. This was a direct threat. I said, it's an absolutely direct threat. And, uh, and I said, I'm thinking about maybe contacting the FBI about this. I said, because this is ridiculous. Some of your stature and status to, uh, to threaten to use 
uh, special ops assassins to to you know pick off a civilian. Uh, you know, even if you didn't mean it, why would you say something like that to begin with? That's that's a crazy notion. It's a crazy thing to say. And so he responded with the uh, FBI director's number and said, go ahead and call him. He's my friend. And I'm like, wow. We continued to go back and forth on email, and I really gave it back to him. But uh, at that point, I was like, I'm obviously not going to pursue this because who the hell would I pursue it with at this point? I mean, if he's friends with with all the uh, the people that count in in D.C., I don't have any recourse. So I, I will say this. Ever since then, I have had the feeling that I have been surveilled off and on and or monitored. I'm not going to say on a full-time basis, but I would say I've, I have a feeling that, you know, they, whoever they are, are checking in on me. Um, now, let's let's think about it. If he really has these contacts, I suppose he could have hit them up and said, who's this person? And, and I'm sure at this point they know who I am. So that's why I said I get the feeling that I have been surveilled, I've been checked out, and I've probably checked in on occasionally. So, yeah, the, uh, the being anonymous helps. <laughs> now, like I said, if he's hooked up with the NSA, then they're going to know who I am anyway. But certainly being anonymous when you're – Many other venues I'm at, I deal with a lot of racists and, uh, you know, these militia types. And, you know, they're not the NSA. And so if you're not anonymous and they have your name and address, uh, some of them, I think, wouldn't be reluctant to come after you as well if you challenge them enough. Again, the blogger is talking about himself being antagonistic, I feel like. Um, and, and the story, while we don't know if it's true or not, even if it is, I, I think the person he was talking about seemed to be joking, but it doesn't really make it any less serious when you're the recipient of, even if it's a, a joke threat. Um, so it obviously wasn't the right thing to do for that person, but seemed like the guy was kind of joking. I don't know if you're going to be that antagonistic on someone's blog, wouldn't you just take it to Reddit? I mean, it's, it's just really confrontational of him. Well, they, in his words, they took it to email. I'm, I'm sure in his head he wanted to take it to email so that he had a record of it. He had a written record. First of all, in that clip, he right away compliments himself in a very almost afterthought way by saying it was ballsy of him. And then he makes a comparison to Che Guevara. Which, I mean, he he actually sees himself as a revolutionary. Well, I don't know that he he wasn't saying that in the clip. No, but if this happened, would this person telling him, "I'll do what uh, I'll send my goons and I'll do what we did to Che Guevara to you," that just fed to his delusion of grandeur? If it happened, if it didn't happen, he's just making it up, and he's seeing himself as this counterculture revolutionary person who's really shaking it up, who's really like tearing down the wall and, and, and holding the man's feet to the fire. The way he downplays how after this happened, he's pretty sure he's been monitored, and he downplays it by saying, but not all the time. Like that, that feels to me like somebody who's a professional liar who will just give you a half-truth, and then the rest of the important part is the lie because he wants you to believe it. And it's really tough to decipher between the lie and the truth when somebody is so good at lying, they know how to just 
partially lie and partially tell the truth so that you can never actually determine what is real or what's not. And by downplaying that, by saying, well, they monitored me, but, you know, probably not all the time. Well, that's pretty easy to not prove. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know what the government monitors or doesn't monitor, but uh, but I could see them looking in on this anonymous blogger's activities. Um, the way he comes across to some of his readers or some, at least some of the listeners of this podcast when they interacted with him, he was sort of threatening and frightening to some of them. So if the government is surveying people... Uh, and they see someone who comes across this way. So maybe maybe they really are. Maybe they do check in on him once in a while. I really have no idea. You're exactly right. They they could check in on him from time to time, but he's put himself into the position by writing about the things he writes about, and he's already got himself in that mindset. If he ever sees a car across the street, like a white van with out-of-state plates, well, that has to be some government agency spying on him now. It's probably, you know, it's not some moving company or, you know, the cable guy or Amazon delivery truck. It, it now, you know, that's, or even if it says Amazon on the side, it's probably the government with an Amazon uh, magnetic uh, sign on the side of it. With, you know, So he's put himself in that position. And I'm sure challenging racist and militia types is probably part of, or what can get you uh, sort of expecting someone to do a drop by or, uh, you know, expecting someone to uh, treat you with some kind of violence. Like, uh, you know, I get it. This is a very important time in this country to stand up for this specific topic and what you believe in. But if you're doing it on racist and militia type websites, you're not going to change anyone's mind who's reading the comments. Totally. I think it's, it goes back to that delusion of grandeur. He, he he keeps saying that he's he puts out these ballsy controversial uh opinions and he and he does write really well and he does speak really well but he wants people to know that as as you know it's like the the teacher or the boss that you once had that would be really hard on you and they would say yeah but you know I'm doing it because I got the best intentions you know he's he's out there and he's doing you know he's doing these really you know cutting edge you know, controversial opinions and again believing that he's holding the man's feet to the fire and he wants people to see him as a hero and you know no one likes militia groups or racists except for people who support militia groups and racists he's appealing he's trying to appeal to a certain base and and say hey I'm sure when you do what I do like fly through the streets and walk across the buildings at night and and fight the the racists of the inner cities with my words and brain. You know, you're going to you're you know, it just comes with the territory. This next clip he describes what he did before he started writing his blog and what extremes he wanted to take to change careers. Let me ask you before we start this, did this strike you as surprising when he told us what he did? No, actually, we've come across a number of people who do a similar job who actually are attracted to this case. I don't know exactly what it is, numbers, uh, analytics, statistics, things like that. But there are a lot of people who do the same job that this blogger did uh, that are attracted to this case. I guess the best way to describe this is I, I've had a midlife uh, crisis, Not, a, but I wouldn't call it a crisis. I had a 
I had a mid midlife coming to Jesus, so to speak, where I I stepped back and I said, well, you know, what am, on earth am I doing with my life? What am I doing working 14 hours a day in the halls of corporate America, being a, a essentially a psychopath, okay? Because the individuals that I work with, I'm just going to say it flat out, are to be at that level are at least quasi psychopaths. <laughs> Some of them are full on psychopaths. And, and it's just, it's a horrible environment. It's soul sucking. It's spiritually destructive and destroying. And, you know, I did well in this career. I was a certified public accountant. I worked for, for, uh, for a while. And then I got out into the corporate world in finance and finance ha- and held a number of different finance positions um, at various companies for the rest of my career. And, and, but I finally said, this is enough. This, this, this is a scam. It's a sham. And I don't want to do it any longer, and I'm giving up this life. And so I was going to actually perform a ritual. My wife was on board with this, too, is on board with this. So I was going to perform a ritual where I was just going to burn my CPA certificate. And it took a lot to get that CPA certificate. I don't know if you ever heard heard anything about the the rigor you have to go through to get that, but it's not an easy test. Most people can't pass it on the first sitting. I, I was able to pass it on the first sitting, and, you know, I had to get a master's degree to even sit for the exam. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot you had to do to get it, but uh, but it was worthless to me as far as I'm concerned when you look at it from a psychical and spiritual standpoint. So I was going to go out and burn the certificate, but before I did it, I had to research what I needed to do. I ended up having to turn the thing back in. They said, you can't burn it. And I had to jump through hoops to not be a CPA. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I had to jump. It's like I was prisoner. You, they, they were not going to let me not be a CPA. If I tried to not be a CPA and burn that, burn that certificate, they told me that I was going to have to pay. Uh, they were going to bring me to their own court, and I was going to have to pay a huge penalty, you know, like three to $5,000 or something like that. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm not doing that. So, you know, a lot of times we think we live in a democracy, but if you peel back the layers of that onion, it's not so much a democracy. I mean, you're, <laughs> there's, you know, it's, it's, it's democracy is the veneer, but beneath that veneer is, is, you know, really, I would say velvet glove totalitarianism, you know? Okay. Here's another interesting clip. He talks about, burning his CPA certificate, um, which is, you know, quite extreme, really totally unnecessary. And and you kind of, you followed up in in this interview and said, you know, why didn't you just make a copy of it and burn that? (laughs) And uh, and it just wasn't satisfying enough for him. It wasn't like spiritually and emotionally satisfying enough for him. And he says that there was a he wanted to do like a ritual. My, I, I should have. This speaks to the, you know, this was early on in, in what we do. And it you know, a lot of this speaks to the inexperience. I'm happy that I followed up with that question. But we really just should have asked, why didn't he just do it? You know, not even like make a copy. Why did he even contact? The, I'm not sure if we if, if he said that off the uh, off the recording, but. Why? Why not just do it? There's so much about this, so much about this, uh, this clip that we played that I'm listening to and I'm shaking my head. He can't say that he had a midlife crisis. I feel like he wrote down a bunch of catchwords, like like touchstone words that like the velvet glove of totalitarianism. 
which you just don't, I don't know, I feel like you just don't kind of think that up on the spot. He can't say that he had a midlife crisis. He starts to say it. I had a midlife crisis. I wouldn't call it so much of a crisis because that means that he has just equated himself to the average 40-something-year-old man who had a midlife crisis. It has to be more important than that. It has to be a, a coming to Jesus of sorts. Right, and uh, and him escaping the world of corporate greed and psychopaths also kind of paints him heroically. Uh, so I, th- I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at you know, in a lot of the these uh, these things that you're referencing. So is that, and we got those comments a lot when the episode came out. It's like, oh, he's just, you know, is a, is a pseudo-intellectual. He just wants to hear himself talk. Is that kind of what you, what you think? I feel like what he comes up with for Morris Case and the world that's around Morris Case was really important and really interesting when we had spoken to him. And I think that really kind of gave me rose-colored glasses when when we were interviewing him and I probably dismissed a lot of these other things that looking back on now I see yeah he does come he does attempt to come across as super intellectual and almost unintentionally intentionally condescending. I don't know if that makes any sense but he knows he's being condescending and he knows that you know that he's smarter than you but he pulls it off in a way where it's like I'm not trying to sound smarter than you. And the second you say that, you're now being condescending. Anything after that's going to be condescending. And yeah, you're right. He's, he starts talking about the, the psychopaths and he didn't want to be a part of that. He didn't want to be a part of the soul-sucking industry. So you've just com- completely categorized an entire industry that an entire group of people that make their living and just want to do their job as quasi psychopaths and you're you just happen to be the white knight that that rides out of it right and obviously uh not all of them are psychopaths but what we've learned from john ronson's work uh is that maybe there were some you know but certainly not all of them of course okay and the next clip he starts to get into egregores and the whole topic of egregores, which uh, if, if you're not sure what that word is, you will understand what it means very soon. Uh, but this was actually a, an interesting topic that he brought up that we kind of really liked at the time. Um, the idea of it, at least. Not only do I, did I like it at the time, listening to it again, I like I still like it. Me too. Me too. I, I, I still love yeah. the idea. I love the concept of it. And I love that what he says in this clip is exactly what's happened. This case needs fresh blood, fresh psychical energy, and that is precisely what you guys are providing, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess we're, this is a good segue into my blog post. It's you guys that brought it to us to a point. You birthed this thing that's known as an egregore, and you, uh, it's, a, it's an egregore to challenge the old egregore. And, so th- and, and this is going to be a challenge because... That old egregore that surrounded the case for those 11 to, well, it's going to be 12 years now, right? So in February, is that correct? It'll be 12 years in February, correct. Yeah, I'm just going to start calling it 12 years. I know 11 and a half has been thrown out there, but it's close enough now to 12. (laughs) So it's 12 years as far as I'm concerned. So 12 years now, this old egregore has ruled, and it hasn't been managed properly. It hasn't been focused. There's been nothing deliberate about it. It's been chaotic, and it's, it's a fury and a whirlwind at this point. An egregore is the psychic and astral entity of a group. 
all members of a group, a family, a club, a political party, a religion, and even a country not only create egregores, but are psychically included in its existence. And because we are socially active, we all are involved in the creation of several egregores at the same time. An egregore is a kind of group mind which is created when people consciously come together for a common purpose, like solving the mystery of Moore Murray's disappearance. When an egregore is formed, however, unless an attempt is made to maintain it deliberately, it will dissipate rather quickly. And I would add to this, even if it doesn't dissipate rather quickly and people are adding energy to it, but in a chaotic manner, it, will, it can become diabolical. However, this goes on. It says, if people wish to maintain it and know the techniques of how to do so, the egregore will continue to grow in strength and can last for centuries. So what we see here is the egregore is it's, it's almost a, an entity that you form when you come together as a group and you combine collectively your psychic energy and you focus it and you, and you deliberate upon it. It becomes its, its own entity, and you're part of that own entity. You're, entity. you're like part of the body of it. And so not only do you inform it with your deliberate focus, but it informs you back. And, and so you got this synergy going on, and, and when you put all those parts together, it's something much greater than, than, the, uh, than adding all of them together. Nazi Party was a diabolical egregore, but it, ha- it was diabolical because the members that made it up also wanted it to be diabolical. So in that case, it's an unbelievable threat because not only do you have this diabolical entity that's formed, but you have people deliberately making it a diabolical entity. What I see with the old egregore surrounding this case with Moore Murray is there are diabolical components to it uh, precisely because people aren't deliberate and focused in managing that egregore. Okay, so the concept of an egregore. Lance, what do you think? Well, this was one of my favorite things that he talked about and something that I still believe in today. And based on where we are at now, I think we've destroyed more than more than our share of egregores in this case. There, you know, there is a certain uh, uh, mentality and way of thinking when you approach this case. And for years, from probably 2007 up until a couple of years ago, there was uh, it, it was like getting stuck in the mud, right? You just kind of rehash the same things. You, you just fruitlessly and hopelessly try to get out of the mud and you just, you know, you don't make the proper, you start to panic and you don't make the proper uh, adjustments to, to pull yourself to where you can get traction. But I think we have traction now. But I think what he's doing is putting too much of an emphasis on this egregore being almost a personification. And when I listened to it again, I didn't realize how superhero centric he is. He he actually puts together body parts of of this like big egregore that that you have to destroy. And it's it and it sounds like he does sound like he's this you know Peter Parker or something who puts on his his cape and uniform at night and masquerades behind the scenes to destroy the the evil egregore. It when really it can be simply defined as groupthink or an echo chamber and the next clip is the blogger talking about the rubicon and what it's like for us to cross the rubicon 
and what that entails. I see what you guys have done, and maybe this was purely serendipitous on your part, but you've done it nonetheless. You've given birth to this new egregore, this new group of psychical energy that people are bringing to this, this fresh psychical energy, and, and, and you've reached a point now in this podcast, and we've reached a point as a group, as this new budding group, that where where is this going to go from here? Where do we go now? And like I, I brought up the uh, I brought up the metaphor crossing the Rubicon. Because essentially that's what we have to do right now. We have to cross the Rubicon and let's envision the Rubicon as this raging torrent of a river, right? And we got to get across it somehow. And when we get to the other side, we're going to find the solution to this case. We're going to blow it out, but we have to get across it first. So when you talk about this Rubicon uh, in a metaphorical sense as being like this raging river that you got to cross to get to the other side to find a solution, to find something um, that's, that's going to bring closure, what is, uh, to, to put the metaphor aside, what is our raging rig- river? What, is the, what, what are we crossing through? What is this group that has come together crossing through? There, there could be peril involved in crossing this river. You guys are experiencing it right now. I mean, you guys have to admit that right now you're experiencing it. You're a bit freaked. This is what I'm calling the raging torrent, okay? So there are forces that, are, that want to drag you down and under. You know you feel it. And the river is just investigation, right? It's a free flow of ideas and investigation that we have to navigate and on top of us is going to be this scorpion that I call the scorpion. And that scorpion represents the old egregore, in my opinion. And Mr. Big. Mr. Big is, is one of those malevolent ones from that old egregore. So Mr. Big is one. Trolls. The trolls. Whether they be Reddit trolls or any other type of trolls, they are also part of that old egregore. And the, I, I think they're, they're part of any egregore. The metaphor crossing the Rubicon still works today. But maybe it can work like for anybody at any time in their life. You mean it could? It's it's a moment in your life. You it's a decision making moment in your life. You could you could say it's a the um, path less taken moment. No, I think it, it's just like you decide what you're doing, and and there's are these challenges along the way. I mean, that's everybody's life. You're literally describing life. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's it, it's a whole metaphor for life crossing the Rubicon. Or for any goal that you can think of, you know, doing a podcast, doing a week's worth of work, anything. Anything that has a end game, anything that has a solution, anything that has a goal, anything that has something that you can see as a tangible result of what you've done. It is fun to talk about and you can relate things like we could I could go right now and, and talk about what the river is still today and what we are and the scorpion and what that is and all these things. But it's not really going to help us at all no and i think it's ironic it's it's uh interesting that you said that it's not going to help us at all it's ironic that what he had described as the old egregore and the chaos and the 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 harm that the old egregore might cause with this case is exactly what he turned into he was kind of like an intermediate rubicon he was kind of an intermediate egregore it's like we had to get past him Again, the whole journey of this case, the whole journey of the story of this case and the experience of this case is you have to get past these intermediate, I guess he wants to call it an egregore now, or the Rubicon, and we have to defeat the egregore to get to where we're at now. It's just ironic, or maybe it's not. Maybe it was his master plan to say, I'm going to be this uh, this rock in the river that they just have to figure out a way to get around. It's sadly ironic how he included himself in the whole new group that's coming forward and 
trying to put a fresh eyes and positive energy into it. And it turned out that it was the exact opposite of positive. Yeah, at the time it seemed like that, but uh, we'll get to when I think that changed uh, for him in just a little bit. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The next clip, and he referenced it in this previous clip, he met, he referenced Mr. Big, and that is who this blogger calls law enforcement, um, police, any anybody that is an authority. Mr. Big is actively involved in this case. He, Mr. Big has said himself, and this is either the, the uh, Haver, it's probably, I think it's the New Hampshire State Police, but it might also be the Haverhill Police, who, on a link that I provide at that blog post that I'm talking about, it's a link to a miss. It's called missing a missing segment, where they speak with the police, and the police say they are actively engaged in online activity, where they are going in as anonymous individuals and pretending they're like you and me, and they're interacting with the audience, and pretending they're something they're not, so they can hopefully attract the killer or ferret out the killer or killers. So at least that's what they're saying. And it's on there. They come right out and say it. That's what they're doing. So they're actively engaging with us online. Anyone you could be talking to online could potentially be Mr. Big. How long ago was that? Is that? Do you think that's still going on in this case? Oh, I absolutely think it's probably still going on. Yeah, I think as long as this case is out there, there's, there's somebody that's checking in from law enforcement online. Now, are they doing it 24-7? No. But are they doing it several times a week? Maybe once a week, yeah. I think they could check in and and uh, and you know write a few comments, try to you know get up get some activity up to the ex- the extent they're doing it. I don't know. That's that's conjecture, but it's not conjecture that they were involved in online activity, and I believe they still are. I mean, if they were, then I believe they still are. Okay, so Mr. Big and the New Hampshire State Police checking in on the message boards and the podcast and who knows topics reddit renner's blog john smith's blog who knows what what do you make of this while i do believe that this is just basic police work in an open investigation in these modern times the mr big character is a is a really appealing personification of all of these uh attempts to infiltrate the world that this blogger has. So if he finds out or if he has a suspicion that police are actively engaging with people online about this case or an open case, that has to be coming from one entity called Mr. Big. When in fact it's it's probably a division of the state police saying this is where we're going to see if there's anything here. I think it's uh, interesting, very, very interesting. And I was screaming, not screaming, but I was 
frantically thinking to myself while listening to this, and this is just an example of the interview, uh, the how new we were in interviewing people, but where's the proof? Show Show me something that's actually like tangible there that somebody's checking in while I believe that I I do think it's it's interesting that he predetermines that there's a killer right but can I also say that uh, the most reasonable solution I think is that the New Hampshire State Police are not checking in on this stuff on a day-to-day basis or weekly basis they might listen to the podcast in fact I think we've kind of heard that they that they do or they check in on it they might check out the blogs here and there but he made it sound like they're joining twitter or joining reddit or or other websites anonymously and interacting with him and other people and like just to troll them they're not wasting their time doing that It, it sounded to me like it's a almost a delusion of grandeur on his part thinking that you know his work is so important that of course the police are looking at it and of course they're interacting with him and of course it's not just the police. It's now an entity called Mr. Big. Absolutely. And and it's because they're looking for the killer. And then at the end of the whole relationship we had with him, he felt he couldn't even trust us because we were a part of it too. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and then us saying this right now, saying that I don't think Mr. Big is checking in. You know, if, if he is to hear this episode, he's going to say, well, see, that's proof that they're Mr. Big. Uh, they're just trying to throw us off the trail. Um, so yeah, and, and he actually, you know, he wrote about that. He asked us, I think, if we're law enforcement or something like that. And no, hundred percent, no. Okay. And next up, we finally get into the Maura Murray case, and we start talking about his scenarios and theories and a conspiracy of silence. There's this list of theories in my head. Okay, and theories are, you know, what may have happened with Mora. And associated with those, with that loose list of theories of what may have happened to Mora is a weight of likelihood. Okay, so, and it's a long list at this point. So I'm not sure what happened to Mora, but I think that certain theories hold greater weight of likelihood with me. One of the theories that I feel holds greater weight of likelihood is that she was abducted. And she was either abducted by a particular individual who was local or perhaps a group of locals. And she was abducted and murdered. And as part of that, I believe, I take this a step further and I don't think a lot of people do, I believe that a cover-up of that has ensued. Okay? And and that, what, what... I always had suspicions about that, but when you brought John Smith on, it, it solidified it for me. Why is that? Because of many of the things he said, the falsified police or the uh, yeah falsified police report, um, how she really didn't hit the tree. I mean, why lie about this? Why would you lie about something like this? You know, the whole thing with uh, with Tim Westman and the and the eyewitnesses and how they did not see this at all. It just this just doesn't add up to me. There's just so much that doesn't add up about this. The falsifying of the police report the what i call the conspiracy of silence okay there it seems to be an absolute conspiracy of silence surrounding this from that local community um and 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 i think now extends into the state so yeah i i strongly suspect that a cover-up may be involved now if a cover-up is involved then i think it's obvious why mr big would want to drown you crossing the rubicon okay and i and i know that not everybody adheres to that view 
And that's fine. Everybody has their differing opinion on that. But I think what a lot of people adhere to, at least, in the least, and this is still the right direction to me, and psychically speaking, and this can still build this egregore, uh, is that she was abducted and that she was murdered. Okay? And, and, and that's psychical energy right there. I think that, that would be enough to get us across the Rubicon if we're aware of the fact that certain members of this group are from the old egregore and they're going to try to drag it down. Maybe I'm just thinking about the Mr. Big concept uh, too specifically as being law enforcement and people of, uh, you know, law enforcement uh, backgrounds. What good would it do for them to try to bring down anything that's going to reveal the truth? Like, honestly, what harm would it do if they uncovered a conspiracy in a, in a small New Hampshire town? No, it would have to extend beyond that. So, you know, John, ah. I know John Smith has brought up facts that there that there could potentially be a a powerful group in New Hampshire that runs drugs, for example. This is just an example I'm throwing out there so you can understand how this might play out. That that runs drugs, for example. And, you know, if you think I've watched a show recently on some individuals who were cr- criminals, a criminal gang in Pennsylvania, that r- ran roughshod over the local community. It was a large local community. It was a you know probably a fifty square miles uh, to seventy five square miles. They ran the show. They ran the police. They ran the show. They even had contacts into the state government. So and they got away with m- literally murder for years and years on yep. end. And that's what I think when I talk about this. That's what's happening now. P- as part of that show, they showed that the children, the offspring of this of these individuals were degenerates. They were raised in a, in, a, in a psychopathic environment where there were no moral boundaries. And so these individuals were capable of anything at any time. And yep. so yep. think about something like that. You have these, some degenerate psychos who have no moral boundaries. Mora happens to present herself at the wrong place, the wrong time, and they, you know, uh, a crime of opportunity. They seize on it and and they do whatever. Okay, so he gives his theory. And what do you think about it, Lance? Well, honestly, what kind of amazing take is that? If someone's abducted and murdered and the case goes unsolved for so long, it's not too much of a stretch to think that it's conspiracy. So you have a young woman who's missing, and you have an area in New Hampshire that, I mean— We've even said, you know, that area in New Hampshire, there's something about it. You know, it's it. people want to be left alone. But that doesn't mean that they're degenerates. He's never been to that area. He categorizes that area as degenerates. He uses a story about another area similar that he thinks is similar. And, and he uses that as an example. And he says, these people are psychopaths. It's, you know, it's psychopaths that breed degenerates. And then he, he brings in the Westmans. And saying she's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's he's totally misinterpreting that area. People want to be left alone. And we have said that, you know, the Westmans, albeit, you know, very possibly rude and 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 isolationists, that doesn't make them degenerates. That doesn't make them criminals. And that's what he's done in his head. It's not an it's not an amazing take. She's missing. She's been missing for more than a decade. So thinking a conspiracy exists is pretty reasonable. Well, his take is different and I think a little unique because 
he thinks that she was abducted by a person or a group of people, but that there's also a police conspiracy. Most people, if they think there's a police conspiracy, they think it was a police officer who killed her or who accidentally killed her and then covered it up. Uh, most people don't think that she was met with a random abduction and then the police covered it up. That, you know, it, it kind of makes a lot less sense. I mean, unless unless it's like a whole big thing where where people in New Hampshire, the the state police, they're they're you know protecting the the tourism industry, or something like that. If it came out that this happened, the tourism's not going, the mountains are not going away, the ski slopes are not going away. People are still going up there to ski and to go to the to these hikes to look at foliage. Him saying that that this is a conspiracy and he. He listened to John speak and connecting it to the police by saying police reports were falsified is inaccurate. Police reports were not falsified. There were redactions. Well, the police report was incorrect, but but he gave the same reason. He said the police reports were falsified and the car didn't really hit the tree, but that's the same thing. The it, it, Falsified is a strong word. It was incorrect. I don't know if it was falsified on purpose. I think they just got it wrong. You, right. We think they got it wrong. They might not have got it wrong. No, he didn't, she didn't hit a tree. Well, with the tree part. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah with, the, with the tree part. That's wrong on the police report. Exactly. Yeah. And, but but that, that's not a conspiracy. You could see how somebody showing up to that scene could say, uh, yeah, she hit a tree. Because they probably have seen that accident happen there numerous times. But to say that they're falsified is really, it's thrown up. This is one of the reasons why we took this episode off. It's really, it's it's thrown this giant blanket over this, it's four police officers. They're not, they're not colluding here and falsifying police reports. If you look at them, if you look at the uh, dispatch logs, there are some redactions, and the car probably did not hit a tree. Probably definitely did not hit a tree. But you can't just say falsified police report. And I think this is sort of our first peek into his uh, major disagreement with law enforcement. And actually, maybe I'm wrong. It's not really our first peek, but it seems like it, it, the the part about the conspiracy is forced here. Again, I don't want to double back on my point, but shortly after this episode aired was when we supported the FBI petition to have the FBI come in and take over this case. And when we told him the idea of it, um, he was very, very spooked out, actually. And I think that was the last time I ever spoke to him on the phone. And then he blocked us on Twitter immediately after that and just assumed we were, you know, part of Mr. Big or or this grand uh, conspiracy at that point because we supported and wanted to help get the FBI involved. I don't even know how to comment on that. I, I remember that clearly, but I don't even, you talk about being a part of this movement and this new like spiritual positive energy and you have the, a really great FBI invitation and, and a community who's reaching out to the FBI. And I feel like that's where, that's where he became the rock in the, in the, in the raging river of the Rubicon where it was, and it wasn't just his, you know, disagreement or his uh, his feelings towards law enforcement. It was it was his paranoia towards anything that was that had authority 
it was his paranoia towards authority that caused him to say, how, how, what, you guys are stepping outside of what we have going on here? And, and we, we figured, and well, it wasn't even us. It was John Smith, you know, who really started the, you know, the FBI. Well, he started it. We came up with the idea together and John started it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really John Smith who was, who was inviting the FBI. If we can, if we can try to get the FBI, if we can at least, it, you know, we know we, that the FBI probably won't allocate any resources to this, you know, 10 year old or what was it? A 12 year old case at the time. That probably won't happen, but at least it's the the attempt to do it. And he saw that as this this wedge that came between the new the new group and the old group, and the old group was trying to sabotage it by bringing in authority. Yeah, and I think this is when he turned on John Smith too, because uh, of of John um, pushing the petition. Yeah, thought that we were all part of the conspiracy of Mister Big, right? Yeah. Okay, and in this clip, he makes a good point here about Tim Westman. Tim, why were you so emphatic that there is not going to be a solution to this case? I mean, how could you say that so emphatically? Uh, I'm a pretty skeptical person, and I'm a pretty cynical person. Anybody who's read my blog can tell you that. But I'm not emphatic that there can't be a solution to this case. I think there absolutely can be a solution to this case, but it's going to require all hands on deck, all positive psychical energy Mm -hmm. on on deck. But Tim, you saying things like that really isn't helpful. And, you know, talk about respect to the Murray family. That's not helpful to them to hear something like that. They don't want to know people out there are thinking that, especially, and I'm going to say this especially about you, you and your wife, Tim, because you were right there. You were one of the last people to see Mora. And I mean, you got to keep in mind there, people loved Mora. All right. Her, her family loved her. Her father loved her. Her brothers and sisters loved her. She had many people who loved her. She was a, she was a vibrant individual who touched a lot of lives. So, um, and she, she was right outside your window and she disappeared and she's been gone for 12 years and she very well could have been murdered. So, you know, please, can you come on and explain why you're so emphatic that there won't be a solution in this case? We all want to know. And like Tim and Lance said, you can clear that up if you come on for an interview. I think he's right in that we all need hope in this case, right? What are we looking into this for? If we're here and we're saying this is an unsolvable case, that that would be just almost cruel of us to do. Um, so I think he's right in in that, and and I do I obviously I do think that that Tim Westman could help if he came on, he spoke a little bit more. That would be a great thing. So I think this clip is a really is a good one. I, I agree with his points in this clip. I agree. I, I agree with his points in this clip. Now, I think if uh, the Westmans ever came around and had that mentality of, you know, we clearly know that, and we've met many people up there, that they moved to that area because they are pretty much done with the circumstances of their living conditions in some some place that's more uh, suburban and maybe even a city. They want to go to this area because it's rural and they want to, you know, tend their lawn and just live their days, and they don't want to be bothered. And that's not a crime, and perhaps it's seen as being a little abrasive or or rude, um, maybe even a little disrespectful uh, that he gets into, uh, the blogger gets into, thinking that, that Tim Westman and, and his wife are uh, being disrespectful to the Murray family. And that, and he's manifesting that into this anger towards the Westmans, towards people who had, who had no idea at the time. 
So the Westmans had no idea where this was going to be a decade or so later. And now he's expressing anger, saying Maura was a vibrant person and she had people who loved her. Faith Westman's not on the phone looking at Maura and thinking, I need <laughs> that person is a vibrant person and people love her. Or isn't vibrant uh, and I'm not going to go outside. Right. She's simply doing her due diligence as a human and calling the police because an accident happened outside of her house. And then she's probably going to go back to whatever she's cooking on the stove. He's manifesting all of those feelings that we have now after experiencing it all. And I agree that while the Westmans, if they were to ever speak publicly about it, would be super helpful and answer a lot of questions for everybody who's an amateur looking into this, they didn't have that, those feelings at the time. So don't approach the Westmans as if, how dare you? That aside, possibly they didn't have to rope off their driveway and the parking lot for the old weathered barn every time there's an anniversary up there. You know, they don't have to do that, but they do. They don't have to call the police when people are in their backyards or crossing through their property boundaries because they're looking for some sign of Mora. But that's all after the fact. There's a fine line between being an isolationist and wanting to live your life day to day and not wanting to be inconvenienced and and and, and being subject to harassment. And here is the final clip, and he's talking a little bit about our crossroads, which is always still kind of familiar. To me, it's like you're walking a tightrope right now. You don't want to lose what's brought you to this point, and that being that you're a vessel and a venue for this thing to take shape. But at the same time, you're at a crossroads with this because... You are building a force, you know, this psychical force, and now you, you, people have taken note. Those people of the old old egregore, and and you know they're coming after you hard and fast. So you you have to change change your game and your 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 style a bit, I believe. But at the same time, maintain the integrity of the podcast and the sentiment of it that brought you to this point as well. So this is it's a tough formula. It really is a tough formula. It's gonna, it's gonna require a lot of thought and uh, and deliberation on on your guys' part to, you know, take this to the new level, then to the next level, but at the same time maintain the integrity of the sentiment that got you to this point. Okay, what do you think about that one, Lance? Well, you know what's absolutely crazy to me is that he says maintain the sentiment and the responsibility, and uh, really speaks in 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 words that are that are compassionate, and the. But he was just waiting for something to go slightly off his script before he turned on everybody. And it's kind of sad to hear him say that because despite how it played out, he does make some great points and he does present a new way to look at everything. And he was there during the time that we all made the, this effort to look at this case in a, in, in a new light. And he, he puts the egregore metaphor on it and the crossing the Rubicon and, you know, a group of people rising up and defeating the old chaotic group of, you know, the, the old chaotic egregore. And he's right about it being a tough formula. But I think he's wrong about a lot of the things that he writes about and speaks about with no leverage either way. If he says that law enforcement 
has a has Mr. Big looking into him, and the, this new group decides to contact the FBI, then that means this entire new group is part of Mr. Big, and now he's off on his own thing, on his own island, and he was wrong and disappointed by thinking this new group and this new energy was just a, a ploy to make him look stupid or to distract him. And speaking of that, shortly after this episode aired, Alden Howes Olsen, who, of course, you remember from the Happy Anniversary video, he wrote a blog post about this episode, which was a very surreal moment for you and I, Lance, and I remember the moment, and we, and we, we read the article, and uh, we said, well, I guess at least we know he's listening, and uh, so... The article is pretty interesting. I'm, I'm going to read it here. I have it here, and I think it's really entertaining. I think it's really well-written, so I just want to read it here, and then we can comment on it after. It's dated November 25th, 2015, Missing Maura Murray Podcast, Episode 18. There's this dance at the high school, maybe in the 1950s. Stan is 15 or 16 years old, almost pathologically introverted, self-conscious, face covered with acne, gets picked on all the time, can't dribble a basketball or swing a bat, no social skills, fumbles the teacher's questions in class, his words keep coming out wrong, you get the picture. And of course, Stan wants, despite it all, the same things every other high school kid wants, but he knows they're beyond his reach, and he hates himself for it. The same things, a girl, a car, some buddies to hang out with. He didn't even want to go to the dance tonight, but his parents pushed him to go. Told him it would do him good to get out and be with his classmates, maybe make some friends this time. For an hour or so, he stands alone in the corner, nervous, wishing he could just disappear, occasionally eyeing eight or ten of the in-crowd, joking and having fun across the room. He turns away from the dance floor and looks out the window and wishes the night would end. Suddenly, Trish, one of the most beautiful, sought-after girls in the whole high school, puts her hand on his shoulder and asks him if he wants to dance. It's a slow number. He can't believe his luck. They dance and she moves her hands lightly, almost affectionately, up and down, stands back, Stan is in heaven. I can't believe she actually asked me to dance, he says to himself. I just can't believe it. The song ends and Trish says, Thanks, Stanny. That was a nice dance. She walks away and soon the whole room roars with laughter at the sign Trish left taped on Stan's back. Trish loves me. Nothing lately strikes me more like Trish's behavior than episode 18 of the Missing Maura Murray podcast series on YouTube by Lance Sterner and Tim Pleary. What do you make of that, Lance? Well, it's simply incredible. It's funny. It's funny. It, it's not true, though. What do you mean? It's not true that, that we were trying to make fun of this blogger. Oh, no. It wasn't true on our end that we were trying to make fun of. Right, exactly. But he really nailed it with the style. Uh, it, I think it did more for me than um, than what it probably did or didn't do for the blogger it was rage with a sense of humor which i love um i don't agree with what alden did with the videos but those videos were making us aware of ourselves everything that alden did and does is making us aware of kind of how ridiculous we are sometimes and he'll do it do it in this like you know metaphorical way and this was the 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 fact that he put the this whole scenario, this whole scene as like, I think it's 1950s. So all of a sudden he says 1950s and you picture 
1950s. The Patrick Dempsey can't buy me love character who's greasing up his hair, going yeah. to the dance, puts on his jacket. Yeah, no, you can picture it. It's it's amazing. It really paints a picture. Yeah. And what he's doing is he's creating satire. He's creating satire because of what we're doing here. And and he's seeing it as satire. Perhaps at this point he might look at it and say, Okay, what has been done is actually making progress in the case. But at the time, coming off of everything that had been happening with the case, with all the other blogs and all the other drama that was going on and things on Reddit, Alden came out and started creating satire about it. And this was another piece of satire. Yeah, and it's it's a very, very good piece of writing. Um, the blogger uh, in, in question that we're talking about responded, and, and it really just – it wasn't as good as what Alden wrote. It was – what Alden wrote was – was really funny <clears throat> but again i want to reiterate it wasn't true it wasn't like we were trying we you know we had this blogger on to make fun of him we were trying to make a mockery of him it was not like that at all we actually still appreciate a lot of the things that he said we just didn't appreciate his behavior afterwards yeah and we were also really new to the whole thing as well and we've released a lot of embarrassing things and and you know, regretful things that we've said about the case and the family. But this one just felt like it was going to do a lot more damage by keeping it out there. It just didn't seem like, it seemed like a lot of obvious things that were put in these big uh, scenarios and these big metaphors that were confusing and condescending and also a little bit offensive. And uh, yes, we, we, we weren't... (laughs) I, I wish we could say at this point that we had him on to make fun of him, that we were that smart. But he did have some good some good ideas and some good comparisons to uh, where we're at, where we were at, where we're at now, and, and how we were going to move forward. But after that Alden post and the blogger's reaction to it and his response, I mean, it just became clear who who was in control of of the situation with that online community i think he believed what alden wrote and ultimately believed that we kind of were trying to make fun of him uh and and sort of wrote a blog post um kind of jokingly asking us to pull the episode down which wasn't why we pulled it actually we did hear from several members of of this audience this this community uh, who who asked us about this person and is this person dangerous? He's sending me creepy messages. Um, so that was one thing, you know, and, and we st- we were sticking up for him at first, saying, you know, no, he's not dangerous. He's just, you know, a little eccentric. And uh, and then, you know, we just we, we couldn't stick up for him anymore. And he also said some pretty messed up things about the Murray family uh, on one of his blogs. And so we, we thought that was completely crossing the line and ultimately that was the the straw that broke the camel's back and that was why we took the episode down it just yeah it felt like things were just becoming a little bit uh unhinged felt like things were slipping off the rails a little bit or a lot and and we wanted to to stop it then and cut ties and move on and and it it really served it, it really served no purpose keeping it up there when it's ideas and comparisons and metaphors that we all kind of have just put together in a very articulate way. But once the paranoia actually started to become more present, you have these wonderful, beautiful concepts of defeating the old egregore and crossing the Rubicon and doing the, you know, 
the great work of bringing closure to this, that was just opening the door to what was really a paranoid mind. And once that became obvious, it was not only did we feel like it was not appropriate for the podcast, it was, I, I feel like we knew that it really wasn't appropriate for anyone's life. Like you really can't live a life like that without at some point self-destructing. Yeah. I mean, and, and this guy's got a family and, and so he does have a life and he turns this part of him on at certain times and he turns it off at other times. Um, which maybe makes us makes it a little easier for us to talk about it because he's not just this this guy all the time raving about these conspiracies. You know, it's it's just a segment of his personality that does these, and and, and that doesn't mean I'm I'm not saying he's got multiple personalities. I'm just saying he's got a, a normal family life that I know of, as far as I know, and then he does these things online. And when does that like line start to blur? Right. I don't feel like you can really make that separation so easily and say, I'm going to kiss the kids goodnight, you know, help my wife do the dishes, and then I'm going to go be this avenging superhero online personality, and I'm going to look up these cases, and I'm going to interject myself into these cases. Only on my terms. If those terms start to slip, then I start to... I start to be less loyal. I remember when we first talked to him, he said he was loyal like the mafia, which made me think, well, okay, the mafia's loyal as long as you do their bidding. And then when you stop, then he turns on you. So you have the personality that you that you have when you're in your regular life, and then you have the personality that you have when you're when you're anonymous online. So what's the real one? And when do those start blurring? When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.